Uh, fear can make you do desperate things. Uh, fear strengthens a father to lift a car single-handedly off a trapped daughter. Fear of dying keeps a sailor lost overboard treading water for 24 hours before being rescued. Uh, fear of flying makes someone sit on a train or a bus for two days to attend a friend's wedding. Fear of losing control causes a wife and mother to nag her husband constantly, refuse to allow her children outside on their own. Here's another example of fear making someone do desperate things. Uh, Fear of King Saul makes David run to the Philistines. Did you notice the subheading? It was really uh, really good that Jenny read it out for us. Subheading of Psalm 34, David wrote the psalm after pretending to be insane before Abimelech who drove him away. It's a very short summary of a story we find in 1 Samuel 21. Uh, Saul is king of Israel but God has chosen David to replace him. Saul's jealous, he wants David dead. So David is running for his life. On the way, he stops to visit the tabernacle. He meets Ahimelech, the priest. Ahimelech gives him some bread and he also gives him Goliath's sword for protection and David heads off. But look at what fear does. He's so scared of Saul that he heads to the last place Saul would look, Gath. It's one of five Philistine cities. Uh, the, The very people David has been fighting, in fact, uh, It's Goliath's home city. Gath is Goliath's home city. Uh, The champion David killed and whose sword he's now carrying, David heads for Gath. Maybe he thinks he can stay anonymous, but he's public enemy number one, so it doesn't take too long. The king's servants find him, identify him. uh, This one who's slain tens of thousands, many of them Philistines, and they take him to the king. Now David has jumped from the frying pan into the fire. Things have gone from bad to worse. They've gone from Saul to the Philistine king and his armies. He was scared of Saul but now in verse 12 of 1 Samuel 21 we read David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. He's used to fighting Philistines but he has to come up with a different strategy. We read in verse 13 of 1 Samuel 21, He pretended to be insane in their presence and while he was in their hands he acted like a madman making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Akish the king said to his servants, look at the man, he's insane, why bring him to me? Am I so short of madman that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Uh, Must this man come into my house? Uh, David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. They let him go. Public enemy number one and he just walks out of, the, out of the, the palace. They think he's harmless. It's a miracle. David escapes. He makes it to the safety of an isolated cave out in the wilderness in Israel. Uh, and we read, as we keep reading, that his family and a whole crowd of disaffected and desperate people join him. And it may even be in that cave that he writes Psalm 34. Uh, And it begins, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. 
And then he calls for those who are listening in to, uh, to join with him. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Hear, rejoice, exalt, glorify. There's the command and then in verses 4 to 7 we get the reason why they should do these things. Verse 4, why should you do that? I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. David's life's been threatened, first by Saul, then by the king of Gath and he's fearful. And notice what he does in the face of that fear, the face of that danger. He does two things. He prays and he acts. 1 Samuel, he tells us about his actions. He flees, he pretends to be crazy. But Psalm 34 lets us into his spiritual life. Uh, Psalm 34 tells us about his prayer. He prays and he acts. He looks to God and he does things himself. Uh, in this, fear, uh, this series on fear, Let me just make it clear, if you are suffering from fears and anxieties, please don't hear me saying you should stop whatever human uh, things you are doing and just look to God. I'm not saying that, so don't hear me saying that. I'm not saying stop taking your medication. I'm not saying stop seeing your specialist or going to your medical appointments. Uh, I'm not saying that. Uh, David's example here at least is that he does both. Uh, He he actively works and he prays. And this psalm lets us in on how God is able to use the things that he does miraculously uh, to bring him through them and to save him. He's prayed. God answers and rescues. Verse 4, he intervenes and and so David wants to celebrate. Uh, Verses 5 to 7, we get some more details about the sorts of fears God rescues people from. Those who look to him are radiant, their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him, he saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. So firstly verse 5, one of the fear idols on the sheet that you have in front of you is approval. We want people to like us, to accept us, to respect us. Uh, we looked at it last week in, uh, as we, we talked about the uh, imposter syndrome. We don't want people to find out what we're really like. We have this need for people to approve of us. And so the fear comes when we don't receive that. Uh, we fear being uh, disrespected. We fear being disliked or rejected. Now, did your mum ever actually say this to you uh, as you left the house? I hope you're wearing clean underwear. What if you're in a car accident and they take you to the hospital and the doctors and nurses should see you in your dirty undies? I mean, I don't know whether mum's ever ever actually said it, but you hear it, you know, uh, mentioned. Now, what is that? That's not a fear of a car accident. It's a fear of nurses seeing your dirty undies. It's a fear of disapproval. It's the idol of approval. She's more concerned about being embarrassed than she is that you're physically harmed in a car accident. But do you notice what David says here in verse 5? When people look to God for help, he makes sure their faces are not covered with shame. They won't be embarrassed. 
Now, that may mean that God will rescue you from the embarrassing situation and nurses won't get to see your bad undies because you won't have the car accident or it may actually mean God will strengthen your internal resolve so that you say, I don't care. I'll be strengthened in the, in the moment of the trial and you can face it. But either way, it's a wonderful uh, promise of deliverance. It's a wonderful relief for people who look to the approval of others uh, and want that. David seems to have been able to move past this fear of approval and this, this, uh, this need for approval. He, uh, he's not feeling the shame of his situation. Verse 6, he, he calls himself this poor man. It's wonderful. I'm a poor man. I'm not an army commander. I'm not an anointed king. I'm hiding in a cave. That's okay. God saved me. Uh, there's a relief in not having to keep up the performance uh, but to leave it with God. Well, verse 7, here's another fear. The angel of the Lord encamps or surrounds those who fear him. There's protection when you fear God. Uh, For many people, comfort or pleasure is an idol, a fear idol. Uh, We get fearful uh, of being in stressful situations. Uh, We get fearful that uh, there might be pain for us, emotional or physical pain. And and so pleasure or comfort is an idol and and we fear not receiving those things. We fear pain. But here's a promise that God, God's angel surrounds and protects those who fear him, who look to him. Uh, What a great comfort that is. What a great blessing. Well, at this point I just want to stop for a moment and answer a question that maybe you've got bubbling away in your head. Well, that's fine, David, but what about when God doesn't protect or rescue his people. Christians still get cancer. Christians still have cataract operations and pacemakers. Uh, Christians still get pneumonia. They still experience tsunamis and bushfires. They're still ridiculed and robbed. Why do bad things happen to God's people? Well, the first thing to say is that even David, uh, even his experience was that God allowed these things to come his way. God does not guarantee even his anointed king an easy life. Down in verse 19, David says it himself, a righteous man may have many troubles. But notice what he adds next. But the Lord delivers him from them all. The reality of the Christian life is that God will bring and use and allow trials, difficulties. And his purpose is to grow us through them. Just like exercise, it's not pleasant at the time uh, but it strengthens your muscles, it strengthens your cardiovascular system. Trials strengthen your faith. Uh, God brings good out of those difficulties. Uh, James 1-2 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That's what God wants in your life. More than he wants comfort, more than he wants approval, he wants you mature and complete. Hebrews 12 gives us the same promise. Hebrews 12 verse 7. Endure hardship as discipline. 
God is treating you as sons. God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. God wants righteousness and peace in your life more than he wants you comfortable. But what we see is that the trouble God brings, the trials he brings, they last exactly as long as God wills it. Not a second longer. They last until his good purposes are achieved in it. And then he brings them to an end. He delivers us from them. We move through them. It may seem to you as if your difficulty is going on forever, but God's timing is perfect. Well, maybe you've got another question in your head. Maybe it's, yeah, well, I'm not so sure, Dave. What about when the trial doesn't end? Plenty of Christians die early from sickness or accidents or wars or murder or natural disasters. What then? How does this psalm relate to those situations? Well, at this point I think it's it's helpful to step back and to see the big picture. To step back from the tragic accident accident you're thinking about or the awful illness, the childhood cancer, the, the murder. To step back and see the whole life from God's perspective, the perspective of eternity and see God's eternal commitment to that Christian in Jesus, in his electing of that Christian before the creation of the world, in redeeming that Christian from judgement, in forgiving his sin, filling her with his spirit, the down payment of eternity and then bringing her safely home. Step back from that one tragic event and see Jesus dying for all to defeat sin and death, reconciling the whole broken rubbish dump of a world to himself, the broken world of murder and rape and war and childhood cancer. See that big picture and beginning its restoration out of all that. That's the big picture to keep in mind. We even get a hint of that big picture down towards the end of the psalm in verse 21 and 22. David is sure because of how God has delivered his situation, evil will slay the wicked, the foes of the righteous will be condemned. David's not seeing it yet but he's seen enough to know that one day evil will be called to account. Evil will be judged. Those who suffered will be vindicated. And so that's a comfort for those who are victims in the present. Ultimately, for, for David and for us, that will be on, final, on the, the final judgement day. Uh, that evil will be judged and the righteous will be vindicated. The flip side of it, of that justice, is there in verse 22. The Lord redeems his servants. No one will be condemned who takes refuge in him. They're big words, redeem and condemn. Uh, If you like, they're like zip files, that you unpack them and there's a whole Bible theology of words in them. David is using them probably just in in an immediate sense. 
that God's going to rescue him from trouble in this situation. But God, of course, does more than that. He redeems us. He buys us back eternally. He redeems us, buys us back from the slavery of sin and death. And when he joins us to Jesus and forgives us, we escape condemnation. Just as David promises here, no one will be condemned who takes refuge in him. We take refuge in Jesus and Romans 8.1 promises us that there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's another fear this psalm addresses for us. Many people fear death or judgement. We'll look at that next week. Why do people fear death or judgement? Even Christians fear death. Some people fear it because it's unknown. We don't know what's on the other side or we only know a little. And, And those people like to be in control and they fear it because they can't control it. Others love comfort. Comfort is their fear idol. And so they they fear death because they're scared about the pain. Uh, They're scared maybe even of hell. And yet this promise here in this psalm is that when God makes you his child through Jesus and forgives your sin, he guarantees you safe passage through death, through judgment. There is no fear of condemnation. More on that next week. Well, let's get back to where we are in the psalm. We've moved on to verse 8. David addresses his hearers again. Verse 8, he says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his saints. Now, this is the second of his calls to his hearers or instructions. Uh, There's a third one down in verse 11. And after each of these sort of instructions, there's, a, there's an explanation about why, a because. So if you like, the structure of this psalm is call, because, call, because, call, because. He's just told us how God's heard and answered his prayer and rescued him. And then in verse 8, he gives the call. Taste and see that God is good. Experience that goodness for yourself. Uh, You see, God is not a philosophy you follow. You don't do a course. He's not a strategy to put into practice. He's a person to have a relationship with. You taste him. You see him. You can't follow him theoretically. You can't follow him vicariously through somebody else. You can't follow him second hand as someone else describes him. God has no grandchildren or stepchildren. He only has children. You, you taste and see God for yourself. That's the only way to know him. And David calls out to his hearers to do the same. And how do you do it? Well, unfortunately, this psalm seems to be suggesting you taste and see that he's good uh, in a difficult situation. Uh, it's when, you're flat on your, when you've been knocked flat on your back that you're looking up and can see God. Take refuge in him from those fears and those difficulties. That's how you taste and see that he's good. 
When fear strikes, when that situation has knocked you over, David encourages us to turn away from the things we naturally want to turn towards, that we naturally want to take refuge in instead. When fear strikes, we naturally turn to comfort. We turn to power or control or we turn to the approval of others. But David says, taste and see, God is good. Those things are not. Take refuge in him. He's better than those pale, weak imitations we try to protect ourselves from fear with. Verse 9, he puts it another way. Taste and see. Verse 9, he says, fear the Lord. Well, we've finally come to it. Stu's done a, a great job setting us up. Hopefully we've been thinking, Maddie as well, we've been thinking a fair bit about what it means to fear the Lord. The Bible uses lots of words to describe how we should relate to God. Obey, worship, love, follow, praise, honour, serve and yet more than 300 times we're told to fear God. Now I reckon there's a good case for saying that fearing God is is the umbrella term or the foundational, the the primary attitude that we're to have towards God which will result or, or sprout all of those other attitudes, all of those other actions. Fearing God means that you will obey him. Fearing God will mean that you worship him and love him and follow him and praise him and honour and serve him. Fear includes respect and awe and reverence. But it also includes love and obedience. And in this psalm we see that it includes looking to him. It includes seeking him and fleeing to him. And it's interesting that in this psalm where David is talking about uh, the fear of God, he's also facing other fears. Uh, And his point seems to be something like this. As you face life, choose who or what you will fear. If you fear people, if you fear pain, then you're on your own. But if you choose instead to fear God, then he will deliver you from those fears. Choose your fears. Uh, well, verse second half of verse 9, we, we start our second because. Why should you fear God? Verse 9b, because those who fear him lack nothing. Those who fear him lack nothing. Or verse 10, those who seek him lack no good thing. There's another fear idol addressed. Uh, we worship the fear idol of comfort. Why do people love money? Because we love comfort. We love control. Uh, we love pleasure. Uh, we worry about money because that might mean we don't get the things we love. And yet God promises that when we seek him, we lack no good thing. We don't miss out. Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 6. Don't worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? The pagans run after these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. How does it continue? But instead, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. You don't need to fear missing out. 
You don't need to FOMO. You won't when you fear God. He promises to give you all those things that you're fearful of not getting because you put him first. Well, in verse 11 we come to our third call section. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Come, listen, learn. Listen and you'll learn what it looks like when someone actually fears the Lord, when they put it into practice. Here's how you live out fear of the Lord in practice because that's what true fear of God does. It changes you. It's not theoretical. Verse 11, let me teach you fear of the Lord. Verse 13, uh, your speech will change. You won't tell lies. You won't speak evil. Verse 14, when you fear God, your actions will change. You will turn away from evil. We fear disappointing God. We fear his judgement and so we obey him. As we obey him, we also taste and see that he's good. If you want a long life, if you want a, a good, rich, true life, do things God's way and you'll be blessed. You'll enjoy a long life. We want to taste and see God's goodness as we obey him and so we reflect his character in our speech and in our actions. His ways bring us joy and contentment. There's relationship in fearing God. Fear of God drives us towards him, not away from him. Fear of God drives us towards him. Just skim your eye through the psalm and and notice what a person does towards God when they fear him. So verse 1, David fears God, so verse 1, he praises him. Verse 4, we seek him. Verse 5, we look to him. Verse 6, we call to him. All of these attitudes are things that we are moving towards God in. Fear moves us towards God. Verse 8, we taste him. We take refuge in him. Verse 10, we seek him. Is your fear of God moving you towards him? Well, that's Paul's, uh, sorry, David's third call, his, his third command section. Verse 15, we get the because. Why should you taste and see that God is good? Why should you fear him? Why obey him? Because verse 15, his eye is on the righteous. <laughs> there are cameras watching. The lights are on. He sees. That's why you should live this way. And verse 16, he sees the wicked as well. He'll judge them. And here's another reason why we should seek and obey and fear him. Verse 18, because he's close to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. Why should you flee to him? Because it's not very far to reach him. He's close. It's not a long journey. That's a wonderful promise because, you know, it's the opposite of how the brokenhearted feel. When you're crushed, God doesn't feel like he's near. He feels like he's a million miles away. But that's actually when he's closest, when you feel like he's furthest. He's close to the brokenhearted because that's his nature. His nature 
is to be compassionate and to protect those who need it. And he's close to the broken hearted because it's the broken hearted who are humble enough to look to him for help, who are not proud, who are not at the end of their rope. You see, the broken hearted are at the bottom of their hole. They've tried everything else and God is the only one left and so he promises to be close to them. It's at that point that God is close and powerful and compassionate and good and generous. So if you're facing a fear today, uh, listen to David. Turn away from your fear idols. Let go of the need to control, to be comfortable, to be liked, to be powerful. Turn away from the empty, narrow, hollow, shameful, fearful life that you've carved out for yourself and instead turn, seek, fear God. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. Taste and see that he's good. Begin to live the good life that he's got planned for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you might be with us in the midst of our fears, that you would help us to look to you, help us to trust you, to fear you, to to claim your promises, to know your goodness. For Jesus' sake. Amen.